Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. I'm sorry that there's a lot of anniversaries coming at you thick and fast. A lot of history happens in September, everyone. Everyone gets back from their summer holiday, their vacation. They decide to make some history. And so this week, we've got the 400th anniversary of the departure of the Mayflower from Plymouth. We've got a lot going on on the podcast and on the, the TV channel about that. We've also this week, however, on the 15th, it's Battle of Britain Day. It's the 80th anniversary of the sort of climax of the Battle of Britain when Hitler launched his last major daytime strike on London. And it was brutally rebuffed by the undefeated Spitfires and Hurricanes of the RAF's Fighter Command. This week, we've got lots of programmes going out. On History Hit TV, newly commissioned show with Stephen Bungay, who's written, I think, one of the best books about the Battle of Britain. He's all about why Britain won. A shortened version of that will be appearing on the podcast this week, so you can check that out here. But today we've got Victoria Taylor. She's an aviation historian. She's just completing her PhD looking at the Luftwaffe before and during the Second World War. And so from Victoria, I wanted to get really the German perspective on the battle. What were they hoping to achieve through the use of air power in the skies above Britain in the summer of 1940? Later on this week, you'll be hearing the British point of view. Now, you know I don't like doing special offers on this. It drives me crazy because it's just, it kills me. But we've got a special Battle of Britain offer. If you want to see our Battle of Britain documentaries, if you want to see other documentaries featuring Victoria Taylor, we have got a history channel for you. You're going to love it. Go to historyhit.tv. For the next few days only, if you use the code Battle of Britain all lowercase, Battle of Britain, you're going to get the first month for free and then you get the next three months just one pound, euro or dollar for each of those three months. That takes you to Christmas. That takes you to Christmas, people. To mark this big anniversary, we're giving away the World's Best History Channel three pounds, euros or dollars for the next three months if you use the code Battle of Britain. In the meantime, everyone, here is the wonderful Victoria Taylor. Enjoy. The Battle of Britain, it's surrounded by so many myths, aren't they? What state was the Luftwaffe in in early July 1940? Because it had taken some catastrophic losses over France and Belgium and Holland, hadn't it? No, absolutely. I mean, over Dunkirk, you know, the Luftwaffe, even though it had that operational experience that had gone from fighting in the Spanish Civil War and also having those earlier battles against both the French and the Polish air forces, it really had taken some losses due to the RAF, even though the army, of course, the British army and the expeditionary force didn't always see um, the contribution that the RAF were making. But they really were struggling in that respect because they weren't expecting the intensity 
of the RAF. They had all of this Nazi propaganda coming in and saying, you know, oh, the English are weak-minded, they won't be able to actually put up much of a defence. But they actually ended up taking much more catastrophic losses at Dunkirk than expected. And so really that sort of fed into that policy of actually wanting to secure peace where possible. So I guess the other issue, you've got very dysfunctional leadership. So the senior decision-making organ, say Hitler of the Third Reich, are they getting accurate information about the state of their air force via Goering? Well, the problem is, is that Goering is not getting the accurate information either. There's sort of the problem with the fact that the Luftwaffe feels like it really has to sort of step on eggshells around Goering because of the fact that, you know, he has his mood swings, he wants to be told the good news, he doesn't really want to know the bad news. So he's not getting the correct numbers either. And of course, you're getting this real blur of different narratives and losses because of the fact that these battles, you know, these dogfights are so disorientating and you can't always confirm those kills that you think you've made. So really, you know, the leadership aren't getting the numbers that they need. And some of that is due to propaganda, but some of it is also just, you know, the fog of war. So having a commander-in-chief who's an overweight, capricious lunatic with a history of drug use, isn't a good idea? Interesting. Anyway, um, <laughs> let's not go there. So, so what decision is made? What are the Germans trying to do in early July 1940? They are sort of adopting a multi-pronged approach because we often sort of think of this idea of the Battle of Britain being really separate, but it's actually part of the, the approach that's also happening in the Atlantic. You know, you're having the Battle of the Atlantic. The RAF are originally actually having to try and defend um, Britain's coastlines, not the actual airfields themselves, but in the Kanalkampf, in the Channel Battle, they're having to protect Allied shipping. So really the initial strategy of the Luftwaffe is to try and put that pressure on Britain from different angles in order to try and make Britain sue for peace where possible. It doesn't really want to have to launch Operation Sea Line if it can avoid it. So it's sort of putting pressure on those little points and trying to force that peace in time before they really have to commit to Operation Sea Line. What has the Luftwaffe got in its... What are the kind of potent tools that it's got to try and force Britain to the negotiating table? The Luftwaffe sort of has this psychological impact that, of course, has come from seeing Blitzkrieg absolutely rage through um, Poland and France and the Low Countries. You know, you've sort of got the, the terror weapons of the Stuka, for instance, with its uh, Jericho's trumpet and that sort of psychological terror that's been at, at Dunkirk. They've got those sort of aspects of having been involved in all of these really historical, terrifying moments of aerial bombing, so over Rotterdam, over Warsaw, over Guernica, way before that, before the Second World War. So really, the Luftwaffe has got lots of different tools at its position. It's got fits and fighters in the BF-109s. It's got Stukas. I mean, its bombers are a little bit slower and lumbering, but they can still pack quite a punch. Are they designed, those aircraft that you just talked about, are they designed to try and you mentioned the early phase of what we call the Battle of Britain is a sort of channel. It's a coastal fight when they try to attack coastal convoys. And stuff. Are those bombers designed to attack ships? Is that what the Germans thought they'd be using them for? Not really. To be honest, the bombers that the Luftwaffe have are affected by the fact that they're a little bit too obsolete already by sort of 1940. You know, they, they mainly focus on using the Dornier Dia 17s. They focus on using the Heinkel 111s. And really, they're a bit lumbering. They shouldn't be in that battle. But of course, you know, they are the mainstay of the Luftwaffe's Kampflieger or bomber crews. And they also have the problem with shipping specifically that Germany doesn't really have a fleet air arm. It does have its Seeflieger, its sea flyers, but they really do struggle with funding because of course, you know, Goering tends to sort of try and take all the money possible from the Kriegsmarine. And so really it's sort of naval aviation is the real victim of that. So they've got limited tools at their disposal. And then when they move on to the next phase of the Battle of Britain, which is to try and destroy the RAF. What is the plan for that? 
The plan for the Luftwaffe is ongoing. It's never quite completely static. It's always changing its mind between whether to go for radar stations or whether to go for the airfields and aircraft factories specifically. The plan initially starts with trying to go for that shipping and then moving to those radar installations. But Göring sort of scuppers the Luftwaffe's chances many times in the Battle of Britain because he has this issue of constantly changing his mind between the two. He gets impatient with the radar stations and said, right, let's leave those alone. So the strategy is more to try and get that superiority. Obviously, they would love air supremacy, but at least air superiority necessary for Operation Sea Lion by subduing the RAF's fighter command. What do they think the best way of doing that? In Poland and the low countries, fly around and shoot the only planes you see? I'm being <laughs> I'm simplistic there. But is that a sort of the plan, the, the, the operational idea? The plan is a little bit disorientated from the start. Some of it is just the idea of trying to draw up the RAF in order to take them down, pick them off one by one. But of course, you know, with under Air Marshal Hugh Dowding, you know, you sort of have this conservation of resources for fighter command, which, you know, many historians have credited as actually helping to turn the tide for Britain in that respect. Um, so they're trying to entice them. They don't always manage to do it. And they do go for these different strategies just to see where they can sort of prod and try and find the weak point of the finding the Achilles heel of the RAF, but they never quite find it. And then what about this myth that the Germans were like this? It was just a David and Goliath. What, what, what's the truth of that? <laughs> I think what's important to do with the odds is the fact that Britain felt it was David versus Goliath. And with great reason as well. You know, you sort of look at the all-conquering power of the Luftwaffe in those sort of early spring months of 1940. And, you know, that there was a numerical discrepancy between the two you know the Luftwaffe was about twice the size of the RAF sometimes some sources say it outnumbered it by four to one but that's sort of Battle of Britain mythology getting in there but it's important to recognize that not only does Britain sort of ramp up its aircraft production and starts outnumbering German production by double over the summer of 1940 they also have the fact that it depends on the type of the aircraft as well because you know you could say that the the Luftwaffe has more aircraft but Really, how many reconnaissance aircraft does it need, for instance? You know, that sort of thing. And is there the key metric, like between good fighter aircraft, like the 109 and then the Hurricane Spitfire, they're actually not that badly mismatched, are they? No, they're not too badly mismatched, particularly when you put the Spitfire against the BF-109. Although that's that's not just because of the, you know, sort of the, the glamour that surrounds the Spitfire. You know, it, it did have an additional boost in agility and power over the Hurricane, which basically made it, you know, it was the top dog in that respect. It did help sort of catch up with the Germans in that respect. The Hurricanes could certainly hold their own, though. And obviously, you know, it's quite often forgotten that Hurricanes made up the majority of British kills during the Battle of Britain. But they were relatively close. I mean, they sort of... The things that levelled it out between them were things like, you know, so the BF-109s were better armed, but, you know, they flew better at above 20,000 feet, whereas normally, you know, the Battle of Britain was between 15,000 and 20,000 feet because the Luftwaffe had to be low to be bombing their targets. So that makes a massive difference in where the battle is fought and how each aircraft performs in that atmosphere and that scenario. The Spitfire and the Hurricanes tended to be a little bit more agile, the Spitfire a bit more so. Of course, you have the benefits with the BF-109 in terms of, you know, having their DB-601s being fuel-injected which mattered so much under negative G because it's not cutting out the same way as if you've got a carburetor. So hang on, just just for the, let me try and translate that. So it means Sorry. that, so Messerschmitts could do a, you could be flying along and do a vertical dive down, right? Which Spitfires struggled to do. It, it was able to, basically, it didn't have its fuel cut off under negative G. So it sort of had, the problem is, is that the, f- 
fuel in Rolls-Royce Merlin would, would flood to the wrong place. It wouldn't go into the engine itself. And that's what has sort of caused it to sputter. And sometimes you hear it on early Merlins, you know. Um, but that's the thing is that the fighter can't get into the battle quite so quickly as if you've got a fuel injected engine, which sort of makes the necessary adjustments for that. Sorry for the techie talk. That's great. <laughs> People love that stuff. And also in terms of the no- overall numbers of frontline fighters, it wasn't a huge mismatch, I don't think, was it? Yeah, the the fighter strength wasn't too different. So, you know, sort of the RAF had a bit over sort of 700 fighters. The Luftwaffe had about 1,100 of single seat fighters, that is. But of course, you know, with that ramp up of British aircraft production, that soon came up. And indeed, as as James Holland has said in the past, you know, you've got to focus on pilots rather than planes, because at the end of the day, they're the ones that you need to fight. You know, you can replace aircraft. You can't replace pilots quite so quickly. So in those terms, you know, they were quite a bit more matched in terms of the pilots and, and as well as their planes. Hey, I'm Don Wildman. And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Now, what's going on with the Germans? Because the Germans their pipeline for both pilots and machines just doesn't seem to have been as good. Like, why is that? Is that because they weren't using new airfields a thousand miles west of where they had been operating until the, begin- until the beginning of the you know, spring offensive? What was going on? Why did the Germans get that wrong? Or did the Brits just get it right? <laughs> good question. Well, the Germans did have, obviously, you know, quite a lot of disadvantages of not fighting over home turf. You know, they really had the issue of if they needed to repair their aircraft... They had to go all the way back to Germany. They couldn't just do it in occupied territory because, you know, even in some of the territories that they had claimed that had, you know, sort of heavy armaments and aircraft production, 
as a possibility, it wasn't the specialised equipment that they needed for their own aircraft. So they sort of had that issue in terms of being not easy to repair in that respect. Of course, these sort of things get changed later on. So, for instance, with the Focke-Wulf 190 in 1941, it's deliberately designed to be really easily repaired and transferred from beginning to end. So really, I think it's sort of... It depends on the logistics of the situation. The Germans were clearly at a great disadvantage in that respect, whereas the British, you know, they sort of had that better system for keeping their aircraft in the game. And what about pilots? Is, is it me or were there just fewer German pilots coming available, frontline squadrons? And is that connected with the losses they'd suffered in the Battle of France? They hadn't been expecting this huge demand for new pilots. Germany sort of had the issue of, you know, it, it had to replace the pilots that it lost at Dunkirk, but it did actually have, in the early years of the war, it did have a very effective pilot training program. Obviously, its hours drop by about, you know, sort of half towards the end of the war. But at the beginning, you know, it's they've not yet introduced the system of trying to train their pilots on the front line a little too late, you know. And so they sort of at the beginning, have a very thorough training. And of course, some have had experience in the Spanish Civil War. So they're already up to date with certain techniques and tactics that the British, of course, aren't particularly au fair with. So you sort of have, you know, the German Schwarm of flying in pairs, uh, you know, flying in a rotter rather than flying in a Vic as the, as the British were still doing, and sort of flying in this, in what the Germans called these Idiotenreihen or these idiot rows because of the fact they were so easily picked out. So actually, you know, the, the German pilots were actually well-trained the beginning of the Battle of Britain, but it was just this issue of they constantly had this frustration of not knowing where to go, where to attack, and just having these absolute sort of catalogue of errors that really sort of changed the tide of the Battle of Britain. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned the frustrations there. I mean, it must be so fascinating. You've looked at all the primary sources and things. Tell me what the German experience of that battle was. The Germans were outraged in some ways that even over Dunkirk they'd had this really fierce reception that they hadn't been expecting. I know Adolf Gallant was, you know, one of the most famous Luftwaffe fighter aces was particularly angry at that and thinking that sort of the National Socialist cause was getting in the way a little bit in terms of actually being properly prepared for the battle. They sort of have this sense of triumph going into the battle. They actually feel this sort of sense of honour, not just with the men that are actually in the, the sort of the fighter pilots and the bomber crews, but also just in the anti-aircraft divisions, you know, you sort of have these different aspects of the Luftwaffe that feel as if they've fought in this really, really, um, you know, pivotal moment, this really important battle over Dunkirk. And so they're actually, you know, riding on a high. They recognise, obviously, that it would be better if Churchill does accept Hitler's so-called peace offer. But on the whole, they're feeling relatively optimistic early on. And that's despite the fact that, you know, really, the first week, the proper week for the Germans during the, the Adler Angriff, the, the Eagle attack, it actually goes wrong so many times for the Germans. Do they know it's going wrong? <laughs> yeah. if, you're an, if you're an individual bomber crew or pilot, do you know it's going wrong? Because it's such a... We talk to British um, pilots, you know, you're, it's just, you know, hit and run attacks, swirling. You don't know what the numbers are and, and, and what's being hit and what's not. They did certainly have an idea of how it was going because of the reception they had when they got back, especially when they were talking to Goering. So there's reports that he would go on tirades for hours, hours and hours to the German fighter pilots because they weren't brave enough, because they weren't engaging enough, because they weren't thankful enough for their aircraft. You know, they sort of had this issue of constantly coming back, having risked their lives and then having that sort of lowering and morale of having their leader who they once respected, absolutely having a go at them even though they're risking life and limb for Germany. So they do recognise that it is a difficult situation, that it's not always going well. And really, it's 
only towards the end of August that they actually start to feel a proper surge of success. Oh, so that you do think because they because they're aware that they are putting airfields out of action is that what what's the metric? How do they know they're enjoying some success? Because they're sustaining less losses. It's not really quite so much about the fact that they are taking down so many British aircraft, although, of course, this is propaganda. But the thing is, is, of course, they were suffering. You think of sort of the hardest day, for instance, you know, they suffered catastrophic casualties and sort of going into the 70s and that sort of thing. Whereas, you know, sort of towards the end, I mean, okay, you know, they're still sustaining losses, but they also are hitting more keenly and downing more British aircraft. And of course, they can see that for themselves and verify that. And and when you think of that first week of the Eagle attack and how often it goes wrong there and they have, you know, sort of Black Thursday, which is one of their really bad days, it's more the levelling out of losses that makes them feel that actually, you know, they've probably got a chance now to secure it. And remind of what there are several types of aircraft in the sky, but for bomber crews, it must have been brutal, particularly when they switched their attack to London. You know the route that they're going to come, the RAF can just stay and ambush you. Slow moving, terrifying to be just victims, really. It must have been very damaging for their morale to go day after day and do that. Yeah, no, definitely. Absolutely. And it only gets worse for them during the Blitz. You know, you sort of have the the story of the fact that they are not used to this foreign sort of area. They've not really had to participate quite so much in such a prolonged bombing offensive. And, you know, in the past, it's sort of been one city, whereas, of course, when they start moving into the Blitz um, and before then, when they're attacking different airfields, there's so many different sites they've got to go for. And this is the thing, is that, of course, the British, with the sort of the sophistication of the Dowding system with the systems in place with the Observer Corps. There is that early warning, there's ground to airs communication for the British. And so it is much easier for the British to be able to scramble and get to the right place. And of course, Luftwaffe bombers, if they're caught by themselves, they have next to no defence against a Spitfire. You know, they sort of had on... Eagle Day itself, they had the issue of some of the bomber crews had not actually got the word that they'd called off the attack because of the weather. And so there was sort of this story of the fighter pilots desperately trying to get into contact with them and say, you know, don't go. And of course they do. And they get absolutely massacred. So yeah, it's incredibly, I mean, obviously, you know, we think so often about the dangers for bomber command, but of course those dangers are very much for the Kampflieger, for the Luftwaffe as well. And what about the fighter pilot morale? You hear about the, the obsession with the channel, you know, the, maybe talk a little bit about how difficult it is to operate at the very extreme end of your range, if you're, you know, your, the, the fuel allows you to operate at. I mean, it must have been, it must have been, and they must have been exhausted as well. Absolutely. Well, this is the thing. I mean, you sort of think of the constant scrambling for the RAF, but, you know, the, the Luftwaffe are also launching even many more raids than the RAF. You know, they're the ones that are sort of going in for that of constant offensive round the clock. And the problem is with the fighter pilots as well is that they've got the issue of not only trying to protect themselves, but of course the bombers they're escorting. So they're really, really drawn in lots of different places. And it's often made even more confusing by the changes in targets. So, you know, it really is an incredibly stressful situation for them in trying to make sure that they come back in one piece, but also that they sort of achieve all these different objectives that have been flung at them day day by day. Okay, well, you've mentioned that a couple of times. So before we go back down to the museum to finish this off, let, let's just kind of finish on this, ask you this. Who was in charge of working out how the Luftwaffe was going to win the Battle of Britain? And, and why did they keep changing their mind? The issue with changing their minds tended to come from impatience, you know, and sort of poor intelligence on the Germans' perspective as well, because you sort of had this issue of the Germans often thinking that the RAF was at a certain level where it wasn't. You know, at one point, they thought they were only down to about 300 serviceable fighters. It turned out that 
they won't. And so that's why they've sort of, in some parts, they kind of relented a little bit because, you know, they needed breaks just as much as, you know, the, the RAF needed breaks. And so some of that was that incompetence from the top, but also sometimes some of the changes in objectives could just occur from raid to raid, you know, sort of wires getting utterly crossed, conditions of the weather across the channel could also impact where it was logical to attack as well. And of course, you have the issues as well of having inexperienced crews, you know, inexperienced bomber crews that sort of might panic and drop bombs somewhere else. And it's not having the impact that they want. So of course, they have to change tactics again. So there's lots of different variables in that respect of how the German strategy is is carried out and why it keeps changing. Yeah, because all Britain had to do was defend its airspace. And well, I say all that too, but Britain had to defend its airspace and have an attritional impact on any bombers that came over British airspace. Whereas Germans got to like work out how to win the world's first air battle, you know, mm. get a strategic result out of that in, in a way that's never been done before, actually. You've never knocked a nation out only through air power alone. Some days they're attacking like low level airfields, then they attack different airfields from high level, then they attack ships, and then they attack Spitfire factories. And then they, of course, they just attack civilian areas towards the end of the battle, famous in September. So they try a lot of different stuff. Mm. They do. That's the thing. And that's why the frustration starts building is, you know, from the earliest days, you know, they start to report that surely this must be the end phase of the war. This is the logical step. You know, this is the last country that really needs to be conquered in this sphere of Europe. So it really does cause that. And you do keep getting this renewed hope of, you know, even when the blitz starts, the German propaganda magazines are all saying, you know, the isolation of England is bringing the end. And this view is also shared across the world. You know, you look at Swiss military journals of the time, and they also say similar things. They think, surely this must be the end for England. So, you know, that's that's why this frustration builds is that really there shouldn't be any reason why they shouldn't be securing it in their eyes. Um, But of course, you know, there's just so many complicated factors that are impacting that outcome. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds 
of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.